Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. So we've got a bit of a Q&A going on here. So I'll be here for all of your question needs. But it is important to note that I have started a uh, YouTube membership thing. So if you go below and uh, click join, any question you want, anytime, I'll answer it. No matter what it is, I'll still answer it. No choice in skipping your question. Also, uh, obviously, um, if you don't want to donate on a continuous basis, you can just uh, throw a super chat in there and I'll also be sure to answer any question you may have ever. Any of them. Don't care what it is, it will it will be answered. Intro goes hard. Yes, it is. Yes, it did and always has. E. What does E mean? Not sure. J.W. J.W. Don't know what JW means. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. Bro, you didn't have to do me like that. Okay, I just got it. Just got it. Love to see it. <laughs> okay. That that was that was beautiful. So what would, what have I been reading about recently? So I love to make some some small talk while I wait for the various important questions you have to to go through. So I've been reading about the grace and nature distinction right now, kind of distinguishing nature from uh, preternatural to supernatural, getting all those distinctions straight, and writing a essay right now actually on the relationship between Protestant thought and um, the classical Thomistic synthesis when it comes to nature-grace distinction, seeing whether the Protestants are as Pelagian as they sound. Because a lot of them will say that uh, Adam would not have needed grace. Well, grace outside of like gracious disposition of God, not anything above his nature in order to to um, be saved. So... I have been reading a lot about that. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm still in the research stage of uh, looking at a lot of the the Catholic distinctions which are being made, trying to imbibe them. I've been uh, currently annotating on the annotated Thomist right now in uh, Prima Secundae in the section on uh, on grace. So I've been really uh, reading a lot of the a lot of the Summa. Well, at least the summa a lot of times when it comes to that, trying to see uh, where where it might have went wrong and where 
the Protestants actually might not be too bad. Right now, my sneaking suspicion, the the way I'm kind of tending with with how I think um, the evidence is going to lay out, is that the earlier Protestants were sloppy with their language. They were not holding to the historic uh, distinctions that the church has always held to. They invented sort of their own language that they thought was better. And then what happened after that is over a few centuries uh, into the 19th century, you have this theologian named Herman Bovink. And Herman Bovink, when he writes about the Catholic view of nature and grace, you see he absolutely butchers it. And he does have extremely troubling views with the abilities of nature, something which uh, may even be called uh, Pelagian. So it's my sneaking suspicion is that uh, the earlier guys weren't bad, but they sound bad. And the later guys, they sound bad and they are actually bad. Okay, so question. Good question to start out. Are Adam and Eve canonized saints? Okay, so I guess I'll answer that one first. So when it comes to canonization, there's we, we distinguish between pre-congregation and then post-congregation saints. So there's actually an earlier group of saints really before the canonization process gets started that are de facto canonized. So basically, we regard them as saints, uh, but there wasn't any official uh, extraordinary uh, declaration by the church. But because of the universal acceptance of their sanctity, the church has accepted them as saints. So these are the the pre-congregation saints. This would this would um, include Adam and Eve as saints in this way. So if so, can we pray to them? Yes, yes, you can pray to them. It is almost I've never ever read any Catholic author which have said that Adam and Eve were damned. That would be extremely bad to to say so. It is. It is uh, very clear that um, that they are um, in heaven. They do have the beatific vision. So thus, you can pray for them. And uh, as a general note, actually, a saint does not need to be canonized for you to pray to them. They can be somebody who is uh, uh, a blessed, somebody who's a venerable, even actually family members. You can ask the intercession of. I know in the Eastern tradition, there is a tradition of adding... Um, your ancestors who have died uh, to your to your list of uh, saints to ask for their intercession. <clears throat> and then furthermore, can we call Eve mother like we call Mary mother? Yes, actually, it's traditional to refer to. And, and I, I usually speak this way because it's very common in in the Reformed tradition, which I was first learning a lot of this stuff in. Uh, it's it's customary to refer to Adam and Eve as our first parents. So in that sense, we can call um, Adam our father and and Eve our mother. Or um, yeah. So it is very it is customary to call them our first parents. Okay, so have you read Taylor Marshall's Infiltration? If yes, what do you think about it? Oh, this is what you guys came out to came out to ask. Hey, I see. Um, this is a difficult one. Yes, I have read Taylor Marshall's Infiltration. One night while I was working, I listened to the whole audiobook, and it was he, he has very entertaining prose. I will say that. Um, very very entertaining prose indeed. But with a lot of the content, 
Um, I'm not entirely sure that a lot of it is, is completely accurate. But really, I, I don't, I honestly don't know. It's, it's a lot of, I, I hear different stuff from different people and I'm not interested enough to dive into a lot of the historical debates surrounding um, Vatican II. But uh, as, as first uh, sort of initial response, it does sound like a crackhead theory to say that there's St. Gallen's Mafia, uh, who, I mean, obviously there was St. Gallen's Mafia there, there was people in it who were talking about it, but that they had the type of influence that they did. Okay, so have you made a video on how the church has the authority to pronounce someone a saint? I have not, but I will um, explain to you right now, actually, how the church has the authority to pronounce someone a saint. So the church can have uh, really two functions when it comes to pronouncing something infallibly. First is when something's a dogma. So this can be uh, one of the, something contained in Revelation basically. And now secondly, they can actually pronounce what's called a dogmatic fact. So it's something which is connected with revelation, but isn't itself revelation. So an example of this famously would be the canon of scripture, or another example would be defining what heretics believe. And another would be defining the true sense in which the church has previously defined something. So technically interpreting a church document, uh, the church interpreting a church document uh, is, is something which is a dogmatic fact and not something which is dogmatic. And another place that this can occur is in the canonization of saints. <clears throat> okay, so, oh, and uh, I, I guess I can explain this a little bit more. So the reasoning behind the indefectibility of the church when it comes to the canonization of saints is because it's intrinsically liturgical. So it would be blasphemous to say that the church would bind the faithful universally to asking for the intercession of somebody who is actually in hell. That would not be okay. Oh, I feel like I'm going to sneeze. That's the worst. Okay, it's over. Okay, can you respond to the charge that icons are an historian? I'm assuming you got this from a reformed person. I would be utterly shocked if the person wasn't reformed. Well, the thing I have to say to the reformed is I actually think they're an historian, but uh, that, that is a very long discussion for a different day. But when it comes to whether icons are an historian, so this is how they're going to argue. And actually, I might pull up a Word document to like frame the argument for you so you can, so you can see. So they're going to say, so let me throw that Word document up for you so you can see, see how their logic's going. So one, separating the natures of Christ is Nestorian. Two, icons separate the natures of Christ. Ergo, icons are Nestorian. Okay, so the error in this is going to be right here when we think about what it means to separate something. So to separate the natures of Christ, historically, when it comes to uh, 
St. Cyril's formulation against Nestorius. It was going to be uh, positing um, two uh, subjects. Because you have to understand the big thing with the Nestorian crisis is going to be the subjectivity of Christ. So uh, this is why the Theotokos controversy was so important, because to deny the Theotokos is to posit that you can uh, attribute some things to um, a man and then some things to God. Now, the orthodox position is slightly nuanced from that, uh, slightly distinguished from that. I hate that word nuance. It's slightly distinguished from that. Rather than having uh, two subjects, and that's, I don't know how to cross stuff out in this. That's uh, it's bold for bad. So rather than having two subjects, there's going to be two um, modes of predication. So when there's two modes of predication, what we're recognizing is that we can predicate to the single subject in two different ways. So in some ways, we can predicate things to the single subject of the second person of the Trinity as man, because uh, of the humanity he has. And in, in other ways, we can uh, predicate to the single subject of the second person of the Trinity some things as God. And notice that language of as. So that is going to be the orthodox uh, way of doing things. So back to our question about the icons. Are we, when we make icons separating the two subjects and saying, okay, right here on the icon, I probably have an icon somewhere around here. Do I not have an icon around here? I'm such a pagan. So dang, I do not. This is, this is ridiculous. I'm silly. So when it comes to why icons are not Nestorian is because what we're not doing is we're not saying, okay, this right here is Christ as man well this is christ the man rather we are saying this is god pictured according to the pictorial representations that are present right there just as when we say that christ died on the cross we can say that uh, they crucified the lord of glory but they killed him not according to his divinity but according to his humanity and notice that mode of predication rather than a different subject because we're both we're saying that uh, christ died okay I hope that is helpful. And I guess I'll I'll keep my whiteboard up just in case I need to ask a different question. So thoughts on the Sacred Heart devotion. So it's good. Actually, this is this gets uh, back to the exact same question as before. So maybe I'll can I undo this to bring it back? There you go. So let me just rephrase this. Um so their major premise is going to be separating the natures of Christ as Nestorian. Second is going to be the sacred heart is separating Christ's humanity from the single hypostasis. Ergo. Sacred Heart is an historian. So that is how their argument is going to go. And again, this is going to be questioning, what do we mean by separating? If by separating, we mean a certain uh, distinction that we can make. So, for example, the Holy Face devotion and uh, in contemplating the face of our Lord, the Sacred Heart devotion, contemplating the, the Sacred Heart of our Lord and directing 
our adoration towards that. Of course not. We're not we're, through that. We're not separating it. What Nestorius was being condemned for was that Nestorius uh, um, would venerate the humanity of Christ as a second subject. So he's going to separate his worship into that second subjectivity right there. Whereas when it comes to uh, our adoration of the sacred heart, it's not as a second subject, but that is the heart of God that we're, that we're venerating. So it's the single subject, the single subject of God that we're keeping and just with different modes of predication, uh, just as, um, if let's say you write a love poem for your wife and you talk about her beautiful face, you're not separating her face out from the rest of her. And she wouldn't get offended and say, Hey, you don't think, uh, you don't think I'm beautiful. You don't love me because you were talking about my face. That that's, that's, uh, extremely silly. And, um, yeah, the Orthodox. Okay. Oh, starting to. Starting to pile up some questions. So thoughts on Irenaeus versus Aquinas. Thoughts on people who prefer Irenaeus over Aquinas. I don't know what this is in reference to, to be honest, Libby. No idea. Okay, thoughts on super-based and totally true dispensationalism. Peter Ruckman, too. If you guys don't know who Peter Ruckman is, this is about to be an educational experience for you all. Okay, let me see if I can... He was a uh, independent fundamentalist Baptist guy. Actually, that's the is KJV only. Extremely intense about it. It's kind of the um, where I the, the type of environment I grew up in. Let me see if I can get like a like a like a little like crazy compilation or something like that. Okay. Nope, I cannot find it. The Creed of the Alexandrian Cult by Peter Ruckman. Oh my. Best advice on how to rightly divide the word. Okay, let's find it. There you go. I'll hide your comment real quick so you can see this. Uh, believe there's only one true gospel the prosperity so gospel that oh, says no. that your spirituality is tied to your wealth so is true. a false gospel well wow, so true. And if you want to get your bible right in the new testament and get it right every time or the old testament get any place anytime follow a simple rule if it doesn't contradict the pauline epistles it applies to a christian in either testament if it goes against the Pauline doctrines of salvation in any testament, Old Testament or New Testament, it's for somebody in the tribulation or the millennium or the Old Testament. So true. That's right. It's dividing the word of truth. And that's what will make you a Bible scholar as well as a Bible student. But you'll not do it unless you believe the book from cover to cover as it's written. So true. May the Lord bless you and good day. I wonder if he has anything against Roman Catholicism. Uh, let's see. This would be good. Wait, he debated somebody five hours long? Oh, that would be a heck of a review video. <laughs> oh man, 
Roman Catholic rubbish doctrine? Oh, yes, so true. Off of the ground, you've got the blood of Christ there, do you? You know, bloody matter, do you? Having fallen the ground or on the board, let it be licked up with the tongue and let the spot be sufficiently scraped and the scrapings burned and the ashes laid upon the sacrament. A uh, sacrament, sacrament, sac, what? Some crarium, okay. I'm looking like an aquarium <laughs> or something. What it was? Bruh, no. But if it be fallen on the altar stone, let the priest suck up the drop. <laughs> so true, exactly like that. If the priest vomits the Eucharist, oh my stars. Section fifteen. If the species appear entire, <laughs> let them reverently be upswallowed unless sickness arises. I wonder what he's reading from. This probably moral theology. That's what it sounds like to me. The dog has returned to his vomit. Exactly what it was talking about. So true, King. Then let the consecrated species be cautiously separated and laid up in the some sacred place till they are corrupted and afterward let them be cast out. But if the species do not appear, let the vomit be burned and the ashes cast in the sacrarium. We should not leave the church until our Lord is no longer with us. <laughs> the the church tells us Jesus remains in our bodies 15 minutes after we have received Holy Communion. What? Okay, yeah, that doesn't sound right because the form is almost instantly corrupted. How many of you ever heard that? See, I have. Camera, get the camera on there. I'm with some witness here. I get talking like this, people. They got just some crazy Baptist pastor stirring up trouble. I'm just a normal, average Christian who learned how to read in the fifth grade. And I'm reading. You know how to read in the fifth grade? Dude, that's not good. What they say about what a Catholic should believe. I knew you heard that. They told me 20 minutes when I was there. Uh, you should not leave the church until the Lord is no longer with us. What? You what? accept Christ the church, and 15 minutes later, he leaves you, and then you go out the door? So true. Exactly. That'd be the wrong time to leave one after he left you. That'd be the wrong time to get out of the church. Hey, man, if he left you and you left the church, wouldn't you have to go back next Sunday to get him? What happened to him in the time that you ate him and the time you had to get him again? So true. Real. Canon 2, Council of Trent. Oh, is, is he reading the Council of Trent? No, what is this 50 minutes thing? Uh, means 50 minutes. Um, what in the world? I'm not finding any of this on the internet right now. Nope. Okay, and he said that he was told 20 minutes. So let's find out. Okay. Nope. No. Nothing. Nothing at all. Crazy. Too bad. Guess he was wrong. Couldn't have couldn't have caught, guessed that. Okay, so 
let me see, after I've wasted that massive amount of time, I will get back to these questions. Are our choices logically prior, but temporally posterior to God's future knowledge of our choices? No, not at all. The way in which God's knowledge works is that, uh, as St. Thomas Aquinas teaches, that God's foreknowledge isn't caused by some sort of like gazing out to, to, to contemplate what might happen, but God's foreknowledge is the cause of the events in which it is known. So it's it's in a it's in an analogous way to how St. Thomas will describe the difference between human love and divine love when it comes to the relation to the good. When it comes to, to divine love, divine love creates the goodness in a thing. It's goodness flows from the divine love. When it comes to human love, our love is attracted to the goodness of a certain thing. And it's the same way when it comes to God's knowledge of something. God's knowledge doesn't. It isn't attracted by truth in, in some weird way like that to where his, his intellect goes out and snags the truth and comes back in like our intellects work. But actually, truth itself flows from his intellect. So, And then can you give a, quickly give a defense of the essence energies distinction against SCOTUS? I don't know. Uh, I never read that uh, they denied the essence energies distinction, which is odd because of all of these scotists that I can bring up who condemn Palamism. So I had no idea. It's crazy. <laughs> Peter Ruckman was, was a man of God, poker boy. Okay. So how aware were the, and I have to make sure I'm not missing any super chats. Nope. Or any of you fun subscriber boys. Okay, so St. Thomas actually answers this in his practical and faith. Let me go snag that. And yes, I just believe whatever St. Thomas tells me. Why'd you ask? Let me... No, I think it's in... Man, have I forgotten where something in the Summa is? Wow, you guys should just stop watching me. What in the world? I could have swore it was. Oh, there it is. I know it. I didn't forget it. Okay, so do. Let me see. Okay. Okay. Whether it is necessary for salvation to believe explicitly in the Trinity. Let me stop the screen sharing and then restart it. Okay. Um, do, do, do. Okay, so whether it is necessary for salvation to believe explicitly in the Trinity. On the contrary, in the Old Testament, the Trinity of persons is expressed in many ways. Thus, at the very outset of Genesis, it is written manifest in manifestation of the Trinity. Let us make man to our image and likeness. Therefore, from the very beginning, it was necessary for salvation to believe in the Trinity. I answer that it is impossible to believe explicitly in the mystery of Christ without faith in the Trinity, since the mystery of Christ includes that the Son of God took flesh that he renewed the world through the grace of the Holy Spirit, and again that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
Wherefore, just as before Christ, the mystery of Christ was believed explicitly by the learned, but implicitly and under a veil, so to speak, by the simple. So too was a mystery of, uh, of the Trinity. And consequently, when once grace had been revealed, all were bound to explicit faith in the mystery of the Trinity. And all who are born again in Christ have this bestowed on them by the invocation of the Trinity. According to Matthew 28, 19, going, therefore, teach ye all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So this is going to be his answer. Um, so the Trinity was explicitly believed by the learned and implicitly and under veil by the simple. So let me see if he gives some more explanation in the last. Okay. It does not. Okay. The reason of this is that before the state of sin, man believed explicitly in Christ's incarnation, insofar as it was intended for the consummation of glory, but not as it was to intended to deliver man from sin by the passion resurrection, since man had no foreknowledge of this future sin. Okay, and I will skip down here. But after sin, man believed explicitly in Christ, not only as to the incarnation, but also as to the passion and resurrection, or by the human races delivered from sin and death. For they would not else have fore uh, foreshadowed Christ's passion by certain sacrifices, and so on and so forth. He doesn't mention the the learned simple distinction. I thought he did earlier. Yeah. It is what it is. Can't search for it forever. So yeah, that's your answer. Okay, I'm currently reading St. Thomas's De Enteat Essentia, and it has been wonderful so far. So based. I'm thinking eventually it's very short. Let me see if I remember. I think it might be only five or six chapters. Very, very short. But eventually maybe I'll annotate that. I think that would be a fun project for um, the annotated Thomist. Just a reminder, you all should go on ChristianBWagner.com and uh, subscribe to the annotated Thomist so you can get uh, explanations of a small section of the Summa every single day. So eventually you can build the habit of good reading when it comes to the Summa and the rest of St. Thomas's works. Okay, why can't I find it? Treatises, there it is. Okay, Dante et Sentia. Yeah, it's only six chapters. It's very short. Very, very short. Probably only take me like a month to, to go through the and explain the whole thing. That'd be really fun. Really fun for me. Okay, so do you do anything actively with the intention of obtaining indulgences? Do I or do you have to? Because if you have to, I think I have my handbook on indulgences right here. So let me, when it comes to a plenary indulgence, I'm going to make sure I definitely have this right. Uh, norms for indulgences. There you go. Page 19. Okay, let me see, trying to see where they exactly list it, if not I have it, 
Ah, okay, whatever. Oh, wait. Ah, I can't find it. Well, what it is is what you have to do is um, you have the reception of the Eucharist, you have confession, you have prayer for the Pope's intention, and then freedom from all attachment to sin. So I'm going to explain each one of those. So when it comes to confession, you can have multiple plenary indulgences attached with each confession. So let's say you want to be a superstar and read uh, sacred scripture for 30 minutes a day, which is one of the um, one of the plenary indulgences you can get. So you you read scripture on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then you go to confession on Sunday. That would be six uh, plenary indulgences right there. So you have to go to confession. Second is the reception of the Eucharist. So when it comes to the reception of the Eucharist, this works a little bit different because you're only allowed one plenary indulgence for one Eucharist. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then you go and receive the Eucharist on Sunday. How many plenary indulgences do you get? You get one. And uh, in that case, all of the the others would just be um, wouldn't be plenary. They'd be partial indulgences, which uh, still um, take away the temporal punishment due to sin. Um, so still a good deal. I mean, you, it's, it's not like God will just say, well, no, too bad. You, uh, you, you did all of, all of this good stuff. And then now, um, it just, just too bad. So when it comes to the third, the third that I listed prayers for the Pope's intentions, um, you just pray, uh, pater, ave, credo, uh, for the Pope's intentions. That's sufficient at the end of whatever the, the work you are doing. And then the last one, and this is the hardest one because it isn't um, automatic like the other ones. Freedom from all attachment due to sin, even venial. So what this means is, means that you, if presented with the opportunity to sin, would not sin. And you don't intend to sin. That's what freedom from attachment due to sin is. So uh, those, so, so yes, it's not as simple as just like, like you'll get... Um, Occasionally, Protestants will be posting on Twitter about how if you if you uh, follow the Pope on Twitter, you get an indulgement, you get out of hell. No, that's not how it works. Um, there, there's still the attached uh, works that have to be done, um, and we can uh, we can question the prudence of, of giving indulgements for uh, liking the Pope's account on Twitter, but we cannot question the validity. So. How does Sola Scriptura work if you can't read? Um, <laughs> when it comes to uh, classical Protestant thought concerning the, the teaching function of the church, there is still a magisterium of the church. And the, 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 the uh, fide proxima, the regular fide proxima, the proximate rule of faith is still going to be the preaching of the lawful pastors of the church. So it's not really going to change if whether you can or can't read or or uh, whatever it may be. The, uh, really, it's a question about authority, not necessarily about epistemology. It's a question, and I'm going to make sure I didn't miss a super chat. Okay, good. If you pray to someone you think is in heaven for their intercession, but they're actually in purgatory, does that prayer reduce the time the person in question will spend in purgatory?
I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea. I have no idea at all. The, the, the time they will spend in purgatory? I don't know. And there's no section in the Summa for this that I remember. Okay, so is there any Nouvelle Theologie? I, I actually met a met a French guy recently, and I asked him how to say Nouvelle Theologie. And it, it's 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 not the it's theologie, but it's also pronounced very differently. So that's that's the one uh, difference I'll make. That I asked him about all these French theolo uh, theologians and theological terms how to pronounce, and it's so weird. I'll never be able to pronounce any of them. So is uh, is there any uh, are there any uh, Nouvelle Theologie? Uh, that are based, or should we stick to Gary Goulagrange? Oh, man. Uh, it, it depends on how you're defining the, the Nouvelle Theologie. So there are, uh, if you consider, for example, like Bernard Lonergan, if you consider, some people consider him a uh, Nouvelle Theologie. I, re I really liked his um, Pars Systematica and Pars Dogmatica, uh, De Trinitate. His uh, his two volumes on the Trinity they were very 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 good, very good. Um, but for the most part, um, it, it, there's a question between can you and should you. And you asked should you, so you're asking for my advice whether I myself would um, read a lot of the Nouvelle Theologie. I would read their historical work. For example, Medieval Exegesis by Henri de Lubac. That's famously a very good historical work when it comes to uh, collecting a bunch of what are basically Wikipedia articles on the uh, Medieval Exegesis. That's basically what it is. And it's good historical work. And what you, for example, Karl Rahner, uh, Rahner and a lot of these other, uh, uh, von uh, Hans uh, or is von Balthasar. They're wonderful historians. They have great encyclopedia articles and some shorter books on historical issues. Very, very good. Very good. But would I read uh, them on the Trinity or would I rather read a, like uh, the Sacred Theologia Summa on the Trinity uh, or uh, Lagrange's commentary on Thomas's tract Eternitate? Uh, obviously, um, I would not read them when it comes to that. So I hope that is a, a good answer. Lagrange or death. So true. So true, King. So true. Okay. So if God's knowledge creates the truth he knows, how are our choices free? So that's a good question. Well, they're free because uh, that is the manner in which he has ordained them to be carried out. So I hope that's a. I, I, again, it's a it's it's a very uh, difficult question to ask, but it, we do have to confess that uh, one uh, God is the efficient cause, rendering from potency to act our 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 wills and the the working of our intellects. So that's something that that we must needs confess. Uh, but it doesn't. I, I think the 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 language which is used by the Westminster, which I I think is very helpful is um, that it doesn't do damage to the instrument whereby it works. So it's not as if uh, God is is forcing our hands uh, to, to act in a way contrary to our nature, but he ordains us to act in accordance uh, with our specific nature, if that helps.
and, and again, it, it's so, and I think there's, there's a lot of practical um, reasons that we have to confess uh, this about the relationship between uh, divine causality and the human will. Because when you think of your arguments for the existence of God, um, if you apply these arguments uh, and then consider the fact of a, of a groundless will, which is not in a certain uh, sense caused by God, then you're going to just destroy all of your, your, um, your arguments for the existence of God. You're going to have something in creation, which is a pure act. You're going to have something in creation, which is a, uh, a moving mover, a prime mover. You're going to have something which is an uncaused cause. That's what you're going to have with the human will. If you, if you don't admit the Thomistic view on the matter, and it's very damaging because Again, you could just respond that none of the arguments for the existence of God, uh, existence of God, work if you if you decide to go off a Molinistic way of of proceeding. And then also, I think what is helpful. So you're asking how our choices are are free. I think it's helpful. I'm gonna bring up Reality by Gary Gould Lagrange, because he discusses this exact question of how we're defining freedom. Is freedom going to be the ability to to make contrary choices? Some would say that, but I don't think that is the best way of defining it. Let me see if I can find where exactly he talks about this. Okay. And... So yeah, so the what Lagrange is saying here is classic, but I I, I think this was actually this merits a, a whole video to itself. But uh, the the argument against the contrary position is in regard to any created and limited good, if God's knowledge is not unlimited and dependent, then God's knowledge would be dependent on determined by something created. And if you have this absolute libertarian freedom of the will, you have God's knowledge being limited and dependent on something which is created. And then on the flip side, when it comes to the human will, you have something which is something which is uncaused, uh, something which is pure act, not being rendered to potency, something which is um, a self-moving uh, mover, which is obviously absurd when it comes to something which is uh, limited and created. Okay, thank you. And yes, they were reformed. On the matter of iconography, they sent me to a site called Puritan Boards with iconoclast quotes from the fathers. Not sure if you know what I'm talking about. Yes, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I know exactly what Puritan Board is. What Bible app is this? Oh, uh, that is um, Aquinas.cc. That brings up all of St. Thomas's works. So have fun. The Nestorian argument they use against icons comes from the second Byzantine iconoclasm was condemned in Nicaea too, I think. Either that or comes from the Frankish arguments, because I know Calvin especially draws from them. 
Okay. Uh, will you debate Jake, the Muslim metaphysician, or uh, that guy on the Trinity, Incarnation of Christ, Divinity of Christ? Yeah, I'll, I will. Uh, any Muslim out there, um, except for a very particular uh, stream of of the uh, the the Mal Branch um, guys, I will. Yeah, I'll debate you on the on the Trinity of the Incarnation. Just time and date. Okay. Beautiful question. Uh, let me see if there's any um, super chats. There are not. Okay, so I will continue. How could Christ weep and be saddened if he had the beatific vision since his concep conception? Wonderful question. I was actually just reading about this. Um, just reading about this earlier. This makes me excited that I can finally... Okay, let me see. This is going to be great. Come on now. Okay. Here we go. Okay. This is... There you go. Three, three paragraphs of perfection right here. Just reading about this. Okay. Boom. So, according to St. Thomas, our Savior's sufferings were the greatest that can be conceived. In particular, his moral suffering surpassed that of all contrite hearts. First, because it derived from a transcendent wisdom, which let him realize far beyond our power, the infinite gravity of sin, and the countless multitude of men's crimes. Secondly, because it derided, derived from a measureless love of God and men. Thirdly, because he suffered not merely for the sins of one man, as does a repentant sinner, but for all sins of all men taken together. Hence the question, how under such intense pain, physical and moral, could our Lord simultaneously preserve the boundless joy of the beatific vision? And he will answer this. This mystery, as theologians generally teach, is the consequence of another mystery, namely that Jesus was simultaneously a viator on the road to ultimate glory and a comprehensor already in possession of ultimate glory. How is this possible? The truest answer is that of St. Thomas, an answer that is full of light, though the mystery remains a mystery. We must distinguish also in Christ, says the saint, the higher faculties of the soul from the lower, and the higher faculties are going to be the rational appetite, which is going to be the will, and also the intellect. And the lower faculties are going to be these sensitive appetites, concupiscible and irascible. Hence, as long as he was simultaneously viator and comprehensor, he did not allow the glory and the joy of the superior part to overflow on the inferior part. Only the summit of his soul, that is, his human mind and will, was beatified, while he freely abandoned to pain all his faculties of sense. So again, the sensitive appetites are um, in pain, his rational appetite and his intellect are uh, in uh, are beatified. He would not permit his beatific joy to, in the summit of his soul to send down the slightest softening ray upon the physical and moral pain to which he would fully surrender himself for our salvation. An illustration, think of a lofty mountain 
The summit illumined by the sun, while a violent storm envelops the lower slopes and foundations. And as analogy, think of the contrite penitent, whose higher faculties rejoice in the affliction of his lower faculties, and rejoice the more and more he is thus afflicted. So there you go. That is the answer to that question. Take this baby off real quick. Okay. Oh, sorry, I meant the real distinction between essence and existence. I don't know what my brain was doing. Uh, I'll have to get back to you on that one. I'm actually not too terribly well read. But uh, Cajetan's um, commentary on De Antea Tessentia uh, is the classical uh, text on this. So how would you respond to the claim that the Trinity ad extra cannot reflect the Trinity ad intra because the relations in the economic Trinity are master-slave relation of the Son to the Father? So we can distinguish between two types of servitude. So uh, there are uh, servile and filial servitude. So with servile filitude, uh, so with servile uh, what, what was I saying? What did I call it? Man, I can't even keep my distinction straight. My brain is slow today. So with, with a servile relationship, there is that relationship of, of fear, um, that relationship of um, based off of punishment. So it's like we think of the penitent who comes with mere attrition, where they are fear, uh, fearing hell. Uh, rather than fearing being separated from God. So that is what we would think of as servile. And then there's also filial. And with filial, there is that loving uh, relationship of being uh, fearful of being separated from the father. So in that sense, Christ can be a slave and the father a master in the sense of a sort of filial service of love. And thus it does reflect um, the eternal in, uh, intertrinitarian uh, perichoresis between the between the uh, persons of the Trinity and that loving uh, relationship of son and father that is found in the um, ineffable and eternal generation of the son from the father. But if you mean servile uh, sort of uh, relations, of, of course not. That would not be able to be patterned in the economic Trinity. Father Smite, Mike Smith's Bible in a year. He must have so many indulgences. So true, King. So true. Okay. So what do you think of Joe Schmidt's providential collapse objection, divine simplicity? It's probably dumb, but I've never read it. I guess I could eventually, uh, I guess I could, if you send me the link, review it. It's probably not good. Most arguments against divine simplicity just don't understand what simplicity is or don't understand how reason works. Or if they're patristic arguments from online orthodox, they don't understand how to read. Okay, what do you mean by uh, spending time in purgatory? Wonderful question. Beautiful question. Let me... So this is a Life Everlasting by Lagrange. I believe he answered this question in here. Very good, very good work. 
No, why doesn't purgatory? Um, okay. Let me see. Okay. Okay, here you go. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, glorious. This is about to melt your mind because it melts my mind every time I read about it. Okay, so this is actually probably going to be the last question I answer. Unless somebody throws in a super chat or one of my um, members comes in. This is going to take a minute to answer. There you go. This is from Gary Gulagrange's commentary, Life Everlasting, <clears throat> on to Mystic Eschatology. So what measures the duration of separated souls? We must distinguish three kinds of time, uh, duration, time, eternity, and an immediate kind of duration, which is called eternity. Usually there's an A there now, but eternity is how he says it. On earth, our duration is measured by continuous time, which is itself the measure of continuous movement, especially of the apparent movement of the sun. In, uh, in actual, he means actual movement of the sun because based geocentrism. It is thus that we distinguish hours, days, years, and centuries. When the soul is separated from the body and is not yet beatified, it has a double kind of duration, of eternity and discontinuous time. Of eternity measures what is immutable in angels and separated souls. That is a measure of their substance, of their natural knowledge of self and God. Of eternity excludes succession. It is a perpetual present, it differs from eternity because it has a beginning and because it is united to discontinuous time, which presupposes past and future. Discontinuous time, then, is opposed to continuous or solar time. It is found in angels and separated souls as the measure of successive thoughts and affections. So notice, this is not measuring uh, corporeal movement. It's actually measuring spiritual movement, as we can think of the the way in which our intellects work, work with discursive reasoning or the ways in which our affections work with a growth in affection or something like that. That is something which is discontinuous time or uh, the state of eternity. One thought lasts for one spiritual instant. So really is kind of like the, the brain time we can think of rather than the corporeal outward time. The following thought has its own spiritual instant. To illustrate, here on earth, a person in ecstasy can remain two solar hours or many hours in one soul thought, which represents to it one soul spiritual instant. Similarly, history characterizes different centuries, for example, the 13th or the 17th, by the ideas which predominate, uh, predominate in each of these centuries. Thus, we speak of the century of St. Louis, of the century of Louis the 14th. 
Hence, a spiritual instant in the lives of angels and separated souls can last many days, even many years, measured by our solar time, just as a person in ecstasy can remain 30 successive hours absorbed in one single thought. In beatified souls, there is added to this double duration of eternity and discontinuous time, also that of participated eternity. This is very important because there's a certain created participation in the divine life that happens through uh, the illumined glory, eh? the light of glory, which is impressed upon the intellect and wherein we have the beat of vision. We have a participation in some of the divine realities. And one of those is going to be eternity, which not only excludes beginning and end, but also excludes any succession, even succession of intellect, which is which measures their beat of vision of the divine essence and the love which results from this vision. This is one unique instant, an immovable eternity, entirely without succession. Yet this participated eternity differs from that of essential eternity, which is proper to God, just as effect differs from cause. Participated eternity has a beginning. Further, the essential eternity of God measures everything that is in God, his essence and all his operations, whatever. whereas participated eternity measures only the division and love which follows. So there's two distinctions, which is between participated eternity and essential eternity. With participated eternity, it has a beginning. So the eternity of God does not have a beginning, though. And second, with participated eternity, it only measures uh, in regard to our intellect and rational appetite when it comes to the uh, the essential object with it, which is the uh, essence of God and the beatific vision. So that's all that it's measuring. So the beatific vision for us is a participated eternity. Eternity is like the invisible point at the summit of a cone, whereas continuous time is pictured by the base of the cone. Of eternity and discontinuous time are between these two. The one is like a circular conic section, the other like a polygon inscribed in this circular section. Continuous time flows without succession. It per uh, present uh, its present flow continuously from continually from past to future. Our present life involves a succession of hours in work, prayer, sleep. Eternity, on the contrary, is a continual present without past or future, a unique instant of life, which is possessed entirely and simultaneously. Eternity approaches eternity. It permits us to conceive better the immutability of the life of the separated soul, not beatified or not yet beatified, the immutability of knowledge which it has of itself, the immutability of the will fixed on the last end, good or evil. Let us recite, recall here the words of St. Augustine, quote, Unite thyself to the eternity of God, and thou thyself wilt be eternal. Unite thyself to the eternity of God. Watch with him the events which come to pass below you. Let us watch the successive moments of our terrestrial life, not only along the horizontal line of time which runs between the past and the future, but also in the vertical line which binds them at each instant to immovable eternity. Thus our acts will be more and more meritorious more and more filled with love of God, and thus will pass from time into eternity, where they remain forever written in the book of life. Now we're going to get um, to purgatory, the question of purgatory. So these different kinds of time on earth in purgatory and in heaven permit us to distinguish also in the present life two times, uh, kinds of time, one corporeal, one spiritual. Corporeal time, solar time, measures the duration of our organism. Thus measured, one is 80 years of age, an old man, but measured by spiritual time, his soul may remain very young. 
Thus, as we distinguish three ages of corporeal life, infancy, adult age, and old age, so in the life of the soul, we distinguish three ages, namely the purgative life of beginners, the illuminative life of those who are progressing, the unitive way of those who are perfect. This spiritual kind of time may explain salvation in unexpected quarters. Some great act, never retracted, has borne fruit. I knew a young Jew, the son of an Austrian baker in Vienna. He had decided on a lawsuit against the greatest adversary of his family, a lawsuit that would have enriched him. He suddenly recalled this word of the paternoster, which he had sometimes heard, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He said to himself, how would it be if instead of carrying on this lawsuit, I would pardon him? He followed the inscription, forgave him completely, renounced the lawsuit. At that same moment, he received the full gift of faith. This one word of the Our Father became his pathway up the mountain of life. He became a priest, a Dominican, and died at the age of 50 years. Though nothing particularly important appeared in the remainder of his life, his soul remained at the height whence it had been elevated at the mountain of his conversion. Step by step, he mounted to the eternal youth, which is the life of heaven. The moral runs thus. One great act of self-sacrifice, and may decide not only our whole spiritual life on earth, but also our eternity. We judge a chain of mountains by its highest peak. And there you go. Absolutely glorious. Okay. Let me see if there's anything I'd like enough to, to answer the question. What do you think of Mysterium Fide? I read it and it was very good. Okay. Okay. Well, I have to go. Wife just came in and informed me about dinner. So thank you all for watching. Remember, uh, if you want to see basically more of this stuff, but in writing, uh, go to christianbwagner.com, the annotated Thomist. And uh, read the daily articles I release uh, explaining and annotating certain sections of the Summa. It'll uh, give you some knowledge every day, but also increase your comprehension skills when it comes to reading scholastic theology, which can be a bit hard without a guide, which is why I do it every day. Second, uh, become a patron at patreon.com slash militant Thomist if you would like to help me out and get access to daily videos wonderful, wonderful daily videos. And also, if you're a patron, you can uh, harass me with any questions you have, and I'm forced to answer you. And also, you can harass me with video ideas. So, very important. And then also, um, if you want to become a YouTube member, uh, every single Q&A that I have, and I'll be doing a lot more of these in the future, you get to, it's basically like an eternal super chat. You can get any question you ever wanted answered all the time. Thanks, Milton Thomas. You're welcome, dude. And I will see you guys again tomorrow. Goodbye and God bless.